We are in the middle of our series entitled Ready. Uh, we actually just launched into 2 Thessalonians this past week. And today we are moving into uh, one of the really very most difficult chapters to interpret in all of Scripture. Uh, and, and for those of you who are unfamiliar maybe with the Scriptures or uh, maybe English is not your first language, we do have Bibles available in um, pretty much any of the languages that we have here. If you have a language that you'd like to know more about or maybe you'd like a Bible in your language, please let us know and we'll get it to you because we want you following along with us as we jump into 2 Thessalonians together. Now, we are in the middle of this book, 2 Thessalonians, and this book is written to the church at Thessalonica. And as we have seen, uh, the Apostle Paul had planted this church. It was a fledgling church, and it was a church that was uh, ethnically diverse. But like any church, they they came to have problems, and there were issues that they had to deal with. And one of the issues that they had to deal with was they had thought that the second coming had already happened, and they missed it. Now, I remember as a kid, I was getting ready for a, uh, I, was, I started to play basketball, and I got onto a basketball team, and, and I was a sixth grader, and I was playing with junior hires. I didn't know how things worked. No one had shown me anything, and we had a game, and it was at seven o'clock one night, so I was waiting all day long for this game and getting psyched up for it, and then about four o'clock, I get a phone call from one of my teammates that says, why'd you miss the game today? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, we had call time at 7 a.m., our game was this morning, not this afternoon, and I had misunderstood. I thought the game was at 7 p.m., and not the game was at 7 a.m., but that's when we were to leave, and I felt awful that I had missed it. I mean, have you ever had something where you woke up and you realize you missed it? I mean, maybe you, your alarm went off, it was late, and you're like, ah, I, I can't believe I missed that. I, I, it was something I really wanted to be a part of, and I can't believe I forgot or what happened. And, and with the Thessalonians, they had to deal with something, too. I mean, this was their greatest fear. They had missed the second coming of Jesus. That's what they had had told them. You missed it. And they're, they're beating themselves up. And Paul writes to them, encouraging them to say, you know what? You don't need to be afraid of this because you know what? That, Jesus didn't come yet. There's going to be some signs that precede his coming. And I want to inform, inform you about it. And I want to encourage you that you won't be afraid of what's going to happen in the future. I mean, we're, we're fearful creatures by nature. I mean, if I were to ask you what your biggest fear is, what would you say? Or when you were a child, what was your biggest fear? When I was a little boy, my biggest fear was I would lose my mother because my father had died when I was a kid. So every time my mother would walk out the door, I would think, is she coming back? Every single time. That was my fear. And as I've aged, we still have fears. As a matter of fact, they grow in intensity. I mean, you might fear losing your spouse. You might fear losing a child. You might fear your own report. Now, imagine... We, we're talking about fear. I mean, imagine about the end times. I mean, this is a big event. This isn't just a, a concert or a game or loss of a loved one. This is about the king of the universe coming and somehow you missed it. And they are freaking out. And Paul writes to encourage them, encourage them and to clear away some stuff that had crept into the body. And he wants to combat this false teaching. And he shows us how deadly this false teaching is and how we are to respond to it. But he also writes to encourage us so that when we face the future, that we won't be afraid for all that, ha- that is coming around us, that we won't be fearful of what the future holds, that we can step forward in faith and trusting ourselves to God for all that he has for us. And that's what we're going to learn about today. But before we go any further, let's ask God to bless and speak to us in this message time. Father, we come before you. And Lord, your word says that we are to, those who are to speak the word of God or to speak the speak as if they are speaking the very oracles of God, knowing that you are yourself speaking through the midst of your, your servants preaching. And Lord, today I pray that you are the one who speaks, that you are the one who draws us unto yourself, that you remove the fear from our hearts, that we might be uh, full of faith and focused on you. 
So Lord, draw us near to yourself. Help us to see uh, what your coming means to us and how we are to prepare for it and how we are to live our lives in the here and now, in the midst of our marriages, in the midst of our, uh, our rearing our children as we face all these financial issues that we're going through or whatever it might be. Lord, help us to look forward in faith, not in fear, for the glory of your name. We ask your blessing on us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump right into our text because we are learning today that we are to not be afraid. I mean, that's the most often repeated command in all of Scripture, not be afraid. And that's what Paul is saying unto us. And he begins in chapter 2, verse 1. So I'd encourage you to follow along with me as best you can or listen in. Uh, Paul begins in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him. So he's addressing this issue that's come up. It's about the coming of Jesus. And he's trying to clear away some misunderstanding that it developed. And the church being uh, taken to be or coming with him or being with him at the second coming of Christ when we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And he says, um, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken or alarmed. Now, this word shaken is very interesting in Greek because remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And we have translations. And that's a, one thing that's so great about God is that He can speak in any language and seeks to be speaking in any language. This is why we have so many different uh, versions for different languages because God cares about the nations. And He says here, uh, and we want to go back to find the meaning of it, He says, not to be shaken. Now, it refers to a boat that's been tied uh, to, the, to the dock. And it's meaning that there was an initial jolt that actually pulled the rope away, and now the boat's going away from the dock. And he says, you're, you're shaken. You're, something has hit you. It's a one-time thing, and it's pulled you away. But he goes on, and he says the next word, shaken and alarmed. Now, the word for alarmed in Greek is what we call a present infinitive, and it refers to a continuing state of agitation, meaning that there was a moment something hit you, pulled you away from your foundation, and now it's taken you out to sea, and it's a continual state of agitation that is developing. And he's saying that you Thessalonians heard this teaching about Christ. It's taken you away from your foundation and belief in Jesus, and now you're being tossed back and forth without anchor. The, it's, the tide is carrying you out. And so there's fear, there's anxiety. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been on a boat and your anchor breaks and you're just floating. I, I was a kid, I remember being on this boat and I, I didn't know how to swim yet. And uh, someone had, pl- they were, the anchor got caught on something underground and so they had to go down and they, they had to cut the rope and then we're just floating. And we had, the pilot was underwater and I'm like, where are we going? You know, you're, you get nervous. And so these people are shaken. They are alarmed at what they had heard about Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says, this is how you got shaken and uh, alarmed. And look at verse 2. He says, not to be quickly shaken in, in, in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word. Now, especially in the early church, they would have people that would stand up in the midst of the assembly of God's people, and they would prophesy. They would give prophecies uh, on different things, to uh, a, a word from the Lord, if it were. And everyone was not to forbid it, but you were to sift it. You were to test it to see if it was truly from God. And apparently, someone stood up and said, God has revealed to me that he's already come. Jesus has already come. And he says, so someone stood up in the midst of the assembly, and it shook everybody going, we missed it. How did we miss it? I mean, they didn't have the completed Bible yet, and they're they're a very new church. They're learning on the fly, so they're nervous. And he says, so there's a spirit that is um, shaken or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word. Perhaps a sermon was even given. 
And this is why, by the way, that preaching is such a very powerful tool. Uh, because it's faith comes through preaching or hearing the word of Christ. And so we need to understand how to preach the word of God. But he's saying here, it was a false word that was given, or even a letter that seeming, was seeming to be from us. Now, early false teachers, in order to get people to believe what they wanted, they would write a letter and they would try to make it sound as if it was from some of the big names, if it were, like Peter or Paul. Matter of fact, we have spurious gospels, and spurious means they are false gospels that the early church never ever deemed to be true. Uh, we have the gospel of, there's one called the, the Revelation of Peter. Uh, there's, there's other books, uh, gospel or the epistle of Barnabas, that er, appear early on in church history. But all of the early church leaders said these aren't from their authors. They don't indicate, they don't, they're not written in the same way. They don't talk about the same things. We don't know where they came from. So they were considered to be forgeries. And Paul is saying that's what happened here. Someone wrote a letter to the Thessalonians making it sound as if it was from Paul. And Paul's like, I didn't write that letter. I didn't write that down. And and that's why you'll see later on, if you ever read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, which he wrote about 12 of them, 12, 13 of them in the New Testament, depending on if he wrote Hebrews or not. And then he would sign them. And he'd say, he here, I signed with my own hand. It was to authenticate that this was truly from him. He can't forge his signature. So he's saying that you guys are upset because someone, he's either preached a sermon, someone gave a prophecy, they read a letter, and it's taken you away. It's shaken and alarmed you, pulled you away from your foundation in Jesus Christ. And they were freaking out. Now Paul writes to address this, and he wants to correct it. Now he says, you're all confused, but let me go back. He's saying, I want to show you... uh, in regards to the end times, that, that, that in all this confusion, it's nothing new. Matter of fact, you're going to have all these things come at you all the time. The only way to be able to avoid that and correct and navigate through these misunderstandings is if you learn to rely on the Word of God. Not what anyone else says. What does the Word of God say? That's the first point I want you to write down in your notes. We need to rely on the Word of God because the Word of God is what we call inerrant. It is without error. It is infallible in that it is completely trustworthy in all that it talks about. We need to rely on the Word of God. It is our anchor. Just as uh, we sang the song, our anchor behind the veil. We are tied. The Word of God anchors us. It becomes an objective truth that we can depend on no matter what. And the Word of God has lasted for centuries. It's the most, uh, it is the most studied book. It's the most stolen book. It's the most banned book. It's the most debated book in all of history. And there, not even, no other book comes even close to that. And the Bible has managed to navigate and not only survive, but thrive and prove its power time and time again. Because it is a book that is written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time from all different backgrounds, all writing about the exact same thing. So it's not just one person, as some books, holy books, are claimed to be written by one person, and and no one is allowed to question that person. This is written by different people from different backgrounds, all writing about the exact same thing. And it was the coming of the Messiah, the Holy One, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And all comes right about him. The Old Testament is talking about his coming and what he would be like and God's people who were to bring forth this Messiah. And the New Testament reveals all this about him, who he is, what he meant, how we are to live, what his coming meant to us, what his death on the cross meant to us, what it gave us, what it saved us from, how we are to live our lives in the here and now. So it transforms forms us. So we need to make sure that we are relying on the Word. That's why I want us to look ahead at verse 15. So it's not in our passage for today, but scroll down a little bit. 
And in verse 15, Paul says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions or teachings that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. So Paul's saying, what I said when I was with you, or what you saw that we actually wrote and you know came from us, rely on that. Hold to it. Tie yourself to it. Bind yourself to it. Because that is what shows who God is. See, without the word of God, we have absolutely nothing. See, the Bible is, what is God's revelation to us of who he is. And how we are to live. That's why so many nations get in an uproar about this book. Because it changes everything. And that's why we have to take it very, very seriously. Whenever we encounter things of of false teaching or groups that come in and that want to change by adding to the scriptures or taking away from them. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said this is so serious that he mentions this in Galatians chapter 1. I'd like to share this with you. But Paul, this is Paul writing by the Spirit. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven, even if an angel were to come down from the sky and say this to you and preach a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. Now, the word in Greek is a very powerful word. It is literally cursed to hell. This is not just a light thing. This is him saying, punch your ticket, just go to hell now. That's how bad this is. He's saying, if he preaches a gospel contrary to the one you have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, you received, let him be accursed. So that's, what, that's why he's saying we need to evaluate everything. We need to run it and sift it through the grid of the word of God. Because there's going to be false teachings. There's going to be people that try to make it sound like they know more or they're above the Bible. There are going to be those that come along and say, you know what? The Bible wasn't complete. We're going to add to it. Matter of fact, it became corrupt. We're going to add to it. You have faiths that have done that. You have others that say, you know, you don't need to follow that. Let's take that out of the Bible. And they pick and choose, and it becomes a buffet where they can pick and choose what they want. And we have to say, no, we have to let God's word remain, remain and stand firm no matter what. We place ourselves under it, not over it. So we have to understand that because the Bible is what gives us clarity. Clarity. It helps us know what is being said and what is not. It removes the fog of false prophets and teaching and helps us whenever we encounter it. It shows us what is good and what is bad as well as to what is to be avoided. For example, uh, I, like to, I like to play puzzles with my kids. We have a lot of different puzzles, and we, we uh, take the top of the box, and we, we dump the puzzle out. We take the top of the box, and we put it there. And we do that so that we know what, what, to, what we're aiming for, right? And the first thing I tell my kids is you've got to turn all the pieces over. Turn all the pieces over, and then what do you have to do? You have to formulate the edges, and then you organize them by color. Now, eventually, when I'm looking at that box, and I'm looking at the shapes and the pieces in there, because we have so many puzzles, other puzzle pieces get into that box occasionally. That happens, right? But when you see the picture, and you familiarize yourself with all the rest of it, you can identify what's false, right? And you can take that out. See, when we rely on the Word of God, it shows us what is true, but it also shows us what is that needs to be removed. So that's what we need to understand. We need to familiarize ourselves with the Word of God. The problem is, is many of us are not familiar because we just start in Genesis and try to get all the way through because we look at it chronologically. And that's, that's not the way to do it because the Bible's not organized chronologically per se. It is in sections, but it's more organized by genre. What I mean by that is type of literature, history, writings, wisdom, prophecy. 
And so we need to understand when we, how to read the Word of God. But I would encourage people, begin in the Gospel of Mark or in 1 John or in James and start there and start small. Don't try to go from Genesis to Revelation because you'll get to Leviticus and you'll have no clue what's going on. But it gives us clarity. It also gives us confidence. It gives us confidence. See, when you know what the Bible says, we can know what is good, what is bad, and, and, and we don't have to be under the oppression or the rules of other people. Here's what I mean by that. I, I don't know if you've ever encountered this or not, but I've encountered people that come up to me and they'll say, this is what God wants for your life. And I'd say, you know, that's great. I appreciate that you were talking to him about me, but you know, the Bible doesn't say anything to me about that. So let's go back to the word of God. I, I have confidence. Or they say, like Harold Camping, I don't know if you remember that, He's a, he was a radio, popular radio teacher here in the United States, a Christian man, uh, but really off, especially in regards to the understanding of the end time. And he said, Jesus was going to come back on May 21st, 2011. And so I see people on Facebook on May 20th going, the end is coming, I don't know what to do, I'm fearful, what's going to happen? And I can confidently say, it's not, I mean, could Jesus come back tonight? Sure. But is he coming back because this guy said so? No. I have confidence because Jesus tells me within the Word of God that no man knows the day or the hour. So when something contradicts that, I have no problem going, that's not going to happen. Because the Word of God tells me that no one's going to know. And this guy says he's going to know. So he is wrong if I go to the Word of God. It gives me confidence. But not only that, it keeps me calm. It keeps me calm. That's the next point I'd like you to write down in your notes. It keeps us calm. That we're not tossed to and fro when things like that happen. That we don't get pulled away from our foundation. And when we have all these false teachers and, and, and you even see churches or weird things happening in the world and people start freaking out thinking that God, that this has caught God off guard. It hasn't. God has prophesied the end from the very beginning. He's shown us that, he's, that God wins. That should be a calming influence to us. And that's what Paul is showing to the, the Thessalonians. Don't worry. This guy's not right. See, the world gets agitated as it is tossed back and forth through various philosophies, theories. We can remain calm because you know what is true and what is false. And the better we know what is true, the better we be able to identify that which is false. Which leads me to my next point. It also helps us, keeps us from going after counterfeits. Going after counterfeits. Now, this passage that we're walking to today is talking about one of the ultimate counterfeits. This is referring to the one who is uh, leading a rebellion to God. And we can look at that within our passage. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being to get called, gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by his spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now what's fascinating, I want to look at verse 9. Skip there for a moment. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked 
deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So it's saying that there's an individual that's coming who's going to be counterfeit. He's going to look and sound like Christ. He's going to be able to do miracles. He's going to be a charismatic personality, a great speaker, great up in front of the crowd. He's going to inspire hope in people. He's going to be a rallier. But what he's going to advocate is against what God and his word has said. But he's such a great personality. People are drawn to it. And we have to be honest with ourselves. We're drawn to great personalities. We're drawn to it. With our politicians, it's not about necessarily what they are teaching or what they're saying. It's about, do they look presidential? Can I put my trust in that person? So ultimately, I think that's what many of us think about. Hopefully, we're better at that, better than that. But we have to understand it's not about the personality of the person because that can be a counterfeit. Because he tries to look like Jesus. Remember, the devil masquerades as an angel of light. So he comes to look like Jesus. He wants to sound like Jesus. He wants to pick up and hold the Bible. Remember, Satan knows the Bible better than you do. Because remember, when Jesus was in the wilderness and was being tempted by Satan, what did Satan quote to him? The Bible. I mean, that's crazy. That he would question the very author who wrote it. And that's what he did. See, he distorts the Bible. So we rely on the Word, but we also must understand how to interpret the Word of God properly. We can't just make it mean what we want it to mean. We had to say, what did God intend it to mean, and place ourselves under that meaning. So when I hear people say, this is what it means to me, I don't care what it means to you. I care what God meant it to be, and and that means for me too. I, I don't get to pick and choose what I want. There's scriptures in there that, I mean, that cut me, and it cut you too. They cut all of us, without exception. Because God is showing us how we are to live. We have to place ourselves under it. We have to realize that. And the more that we know the Word of God, the more that we can recognize counterfeits when they come. False teachers, and there are many of them. And many of them have Bibles, have ministries, and they're false teachers. Because when you start investigating their teaching, you see that it's just slightly off. And when you have something slightly off, it leads to distortion. It's like the Hubble telescope. When Hubble telescope got sent into space, all the images came back blurry. Why? Because it was like ints. I mean, I can't even name the scientific term for it. It's not like millimeters. It's like infinitely small even than that. And it was just off slightly. And because of that, it caused everything else to be distorted. And see, when you're off in your understanding of who God is, it causes everything in your life to be distorted. So we have to go back to say, what does God say? How do we interpret it and apply it and put it into our lives? Now, we can see also from this passage that we need to recognize the rebellion. There's a rebellion. Now, the word for this word rebellion is apostasia, which is where we get the word apostasy. There is an apostasy where people are turning away from faith in Christ to the teachings of demons. Or they are turning away or adding to the Word of God. They are turning away from their pure, unadulterated devotion to Jesus Christ, and they're following other teachers that are great teachers but they're not true teachers of the Word of God, even though they might hold it up and say that they follow the Word. The truth is, when we look at what God said, it cannot contradict itself. We have to recognize this rebellion. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come, he talked about the day of Christ, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, Paul wants us to know that the day of the Lord can't come unless a rebellion comes first. Now, here's where we enter into very murky water. It could be that the rebellion is a separate event from the man of lawlessness being revealed, or it could be that the two go together. 
Paul had taught the Thessalonians about this before and reminded them of it. Don't you remember, he says, when I taught you about this. Now, we don't know exactly what he said when he was talking to them. 1 Thessalonians doesn't reveal it completely, and 2 Thessalonians is giving us indication that they knew something that we are not privy to, but they definitely knew more than we did. And we don't know exactly what he had taught them because there's nothing about it in 1 Thessalonians. It may be that he had taught them about it, whether he had been with them, but one thing we do know is that the day of the Lord would not come until this rebellion comes first. Now, Paul doesn't say that they would be removed from it. So we can surmise that it will, we will not be either. Now, the word for rebellion, as I mentioned before, is uh, from where we get our word apostasy, and it means a turning away from one's previous standing. And the word could be used for a, a political rebellion or a religious rebellion, but here I think the two ideas are likely combined with the emphasis on the religious side of things. Now, Paul probably has in mind a view of time where wickedness and opposition to God increases and many will turn away from the faith. Now, I know that some here come from, and I'm going to use a term that some of you may not be familiar with, but for those that do know, just follow along with me because I want to give it a little bit of a side here. Come from what's called a pre-tribulational view, meaning that the church will be taken uh, away from the earth in what is known, commonly known as the rapture. There is what is known as the seven-year tribulation. This is all revealed in the book of Revelation as well as the book of Daniel. And then Christ will come at the end of that. So in essence, there are two comings, a rapture where the church is caught up, and then the time when the church come, Jesus comes back with a seven-year tribulation. But we have advocated as a church what we call historic premillennialism. Now, we've said that people can differ and have pre-tribulational views. That's fine. Um, but what we see here, I believe, is what we call a post-tribulational or a historic premillennial coming. Now, if you don't understand those terms, that's okay. Now, I, I want to share with you this, what John Piper wrote in addressing those who hold a pre-tribulational view. John Piper is a, a pretty very, uh, a very godly man, great pastor, great scholar, um, now uh, running a ministry called Desiring God, but retired from pastoral ministry, still involved in ministry worldwide. But he says here about the pre-tribulational view about this passage, he says, the day of the Lord in, in, for a pre-tribulationist is in the second half of the second coming after the tribulation. He said, it is described in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. This is the day of the Lord, not the quiet rapture where the saints are snatched away, but the glorious and overwhelming attack from heaven against the man of lawlessness and all evil. Now the question arises, if the Thessalonians were overly excited and shaken, thinking that the day of the Lord had come, why didn't Paul simply say, you know it hasn't come because you are still here, and I'm still here, and the rapture hasn't happened yet. Why, then, did he say in verse 3, you know that the day of the Lord has not come because the apostasy has not come and the man of lawlessness has not been revealed if they weren't going to go through it? So it appears, then, that Jesus will come after this man of lawlessness is revealed, and we can see from this man of lawlessness that he is a satanically empowered pretender. He's a satanically empowered pretender. That's the next point that you can write down in your notes. Notice how Paul names him. He's known as the man of lawlessness, known as the man of sin, because lawlessness is sin. He doesn't want any law. He wants to do whatever he wants to do, complete anarchy. And he's also the son of destruction, meaning that he will be destroyed. It is finished. It is not that he is going to be. He is, he, his destination, it has been determined. He can't be removed from it. He will be destroyed. He's characterized by lawlessness, he, and he's doomed to destruction. Paul refers to him as the man of lawlessness, 
and the son of destruction, but John refers to him in a term that many of us might be familiar with, but it's known as the Antichrist. He is the Antichrist. And we see that oftentimes that Scripture uses different titles for, for the same individual through time. We can see about him, look at verse 9. The coming of this lawless one, this Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. See, he is inspired and powered by the evil one. He's an influential and deceptive pretender. Here are some other things about him. Look at verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, within Judaism, there was the, the temple was the center of religion and political sphere. And with, there were many different Romans uh, that would go into the altar, that would force their ways them, themselves in and proclaim themselves to be God. And they are four uh, kind of like warm-up acts for what the true Antichrist will do, that he will seek to proclaim himself to be God and exalt, exalt himself over every so-called God. And you know where that comes from? From his, his Lord, which is the devil. And it means that he is, he is controlled by unmitigated and unadulterated pride. I mean, it's pride on steroids. That's the next point you can write down. Because see, pride by its nature is competitive. It doesn't just want something. It wants something to be better than someone else. That's what pride is. And see, the devil in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 26 sought to be God himself. He wanted praise for himself. And he's known for what is known as the I will statements. I will exalt myself over the most high. I will do this. I will make my home in the heavens. In other words, he had so much pride that he wanted worship for himself and that caused his downfall. And his puppet, this antichrist, suffers from the same malady that he had. That he wants praise for himself and he suffers from horrid pride. He is God's false prophet. Now the temple could refer to the temple in Jerusalem or it could refer to the people of God as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 2 show us. And that he becomes some kind of world, it could mean that he becomes some kind of worldwide church leader if it's about the people of God, turning the people of God away from the faith. Now let me say this. The point is not so that we waste a lot of time and energy trying to identify him as each generation has tried to do and failed. Every single generation without exception believes that they have the Antichrist in their own generation. And they go through enormous pains to find how political figures are the Antichrist. And I mean, it goes back. I mean, it could be all the way back through time, whether it's Genghis Khan, whether it's, uh, whether it's um, Napoleon, or whether it's some other leader that was big at the time. Even in our day, Ronald Reagan is accused of, of being the Antichrist, and even Mikhail Gorbachev, because supposedly the mark on his head was the mark of the beast. That's how crazy our world has become. Because people, when they don't know the Word of God, and they just see one thing, and they don't understand how it was understood in context, make everything try to fit. And they make the newspaper put it along inside their theology rather than just letting the Word of God be what it is. So we have to understand that. This guy is epitomized by pride and tries to take out any competitor that would threaten his boast of being God. Now, we see here that he's really no God at all because he is governed by a mysterious power. He's been governed by a mysterious power. See, if God is God, then he must be all-powerful, and this guy is not. He's restrained like a dog on a leash or like a bull in a pen. Look at verse 6. 
And you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. Now, who's in control here? See, this restrainer has been put in place, making sure that he can't be truly seen until this restrainer is removed. And there are a variety of thoughts as to the identity of the restrainer is. Some believe it to be the government and law, or it's meant uh, it could be the ministry of the church, the effects of the good news of Christ, or thirdly, it could be the Holy Spirit being taken from the earth. The Bible doesn't give us a great deal of details about it. Each one has its faults. Most scholars aren't sure exactly, but we can be sure that God is the one who is keeping him back through some means, like a bull in a pen waiting to get out. He's just waiting to pull that gate and let it be seen in all its power and fury. Now, rather than looking for one specific individual right now, we have to see and understand that he can now be seen in a godless philosophy. In a godless philosophy. See, what many people don't realize is that the Antichrist, when we use the term, uh, can you actually be a person and a philosophy, a way of thinking that it permeates our society. We call it worldliness or the spirit of the age because the Scripture says that the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers from keeping them from seeing the light and light of Christ. And we see this idea of it being a person and a philosophy in First John. I'd like to share some passages with you. First John chapter 2, verse 18. Now, by the way, the term Antichrist only appears in the works of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or the book of John, Revelation. John is the only author who uses this term. Paul uses the son of destruction or lawlessness when he's referring to him, um, or the son of destruction. Again, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. So there are like warm-up acts. For the, big, for the big one. It's just like going to a concert and you have the warm-up bands before the big band. These are the warm-up antichrists for the real deal. Okay? And, he, and he's saying even in the, during the Thessalonians' time, some had come. So you can assume that there have been many more that appeared throughout history in different regions of the earth. Amazing dictators who oppose God and set themselves up as God, such as a Hitler or a Mao Zedong or some of the dictators that um, many of you might know come from majority world cultures. Pol Pot or Stalin, uh, Hitler. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that the anti, uh, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. He goes on in verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? liar? Remember, Satan is the liar the father of lies, according to John chapter 8, verse 44. But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. In 1 John chapter 4, a couple more verses uh, along down the line, uh, chapters, excuse me. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Could that be what Paul was talking about as well? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. There's this philosophy here. Spirit of the Antichrist it permeates people's way of thinking that they deny Christ. which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And this is in the first century. So that philosophy is still in place to this day. It is a godless philosophy that denies the word of God and seeks to turn people away from their faith in God. 
Now, we've talked a great deal about the satanic pretender, the Antichrist, but he's not the star of this passage. He's not the winner. See, we need to focus on the winner, not the pretender. We need to remember who wins. We have to keep that in mind. Remember who wins. See, oftentimes we get so caught up in the details of who the identity of the Antichrist is and exactly when he's going to come, we're so focused on the calendar that we forget that the Scripture is written to help us develop character. And we get so caught up in that, we forget that Jesus is the star, not this guy. Jesus is the star. He's the, the main player. It's, it's his show, if you will. So we have to remember that Jesus is in control. Control. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He said, I know what's going to happen. Why? Because God's revealed it to me. The end has been determined. The game is fixed. We know who's going to win. And I told you to encourage you so that you wouldn't be afraid. Jesus wins. He's the one who wins. He's the one who reigns. He's the one that's in control. See, what we really need to notice, look at verse 8. This is where Jesus really reveals himself. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. See, notice that Jesus will show his power at his coming. He will kill him with a breath and bring him to nothing. See, we think of the Antichrist, we spend all our time on him, and he's a bit player, man. He's a small guy in the movie. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Raider, uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anybody seen that movie? One of the funniest and best scenes is where Indy's trying to find his friend, and he comes into this crowd in the middle of the marketplace. Next thing you know, the crowd separates like the Red Sea, and this guy stands there, and he's got a sword, and he's dressed in black, and he's like, ah, and he starts whipping it around. Ooh, 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 ha, and he just goes out and goes, puts it right back, and it's done. See, he's a bit player. He looks intimidating. He looks strong. He makes great boasts, and he's taken out in a moment. That's how it is with the Antichrist. Jesus just goes, done. He wins. So let's not spend all of our time focusing on that guy and the one who's the main star of the show. That's Jesus. He's the star. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one that gives hope. He's the one that provided you with redemption. He is the one who forgives you of your sins. He is the one that makes you innocent in the sight of God, removes your guilt, removes your shame, takes care of your past. He's the one that defeated the spirits. He's the one that is the conquering king. He is the one to whom the universe bows down in adoration. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. That's the main guy. Not, the, not this small bit guy. We need to be enamored with him because he's the powerful one. He is the lord of all. We have to remember who wins. He will show his power at his coming. We need to find a light in that. But that's not all. We have to understand something. The, the text brings it back in verse 10. See, we already have seen how the lawless one will be empowered by Satan, but we need to see what happens. See, he's deceiving with wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. See, who is it that the Antichrist deceives? Those who are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to believe in the Christ and be saved. Notice verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. That's scary. That's a sc- that should scare you to death. It scares me. Because, see, when you refuse to believe and trust in what Christ has done for you, then you, nature abhors a vacuum. You have to believe in something. 
You have to believe in something. See, whether it's another god or gods, whether it's something inspired by Satan, or whether it is uh, yourself as God, somebody has to be there. See, even an atheist believes in something. It's really themselves and their ability to understand. The agnostic's just a coward because they say we really can't know. So they take a coward's way out and said, I'd rather be Switzerland than side with one party or another. But the reality is, is that's, not a, that's a decision itself. Because if it's not for God, it's against him. That's what it's for. That's what the text says. And he says, God then, because they refuse to bow the knee, God gives them over to anything. Because see, when you refuse to believe in Christ, you have to believe in something. It's like the atheist, Christopher Hitchens, okay, who hated God. Actually, not Christopher Hitchens, excuse me. Um, Richard Dawkins, man who wrote the book, The God Delusion, Oxford philosopher. And he, he, he just rails against Christianity. I mean, it's no longer about science for him. He hates Christianity itself. And as he was writing about it and talking to them, someone asked him the question, then if you deny that God created the heavens and the earth, how did life form? How did life come to be? And he goes, well, life happened on the back of crystals. And you think we're crazy? It just came on the back of crystals? It just suddenly appeared one day? I mean, come on. See, if you, if you don't believe in this, you've got to find something else to believe in. If you don't believe what God has revealed, you have to come up with your own belief system, even if you are at the center of it yourself. You can have whatever you want then when you kick God out. Now, therefore, God finally says, I've revealed myself to them, but they have not received it. Therefore, I'm giving them over. He's sending a delusion to believe, a strong delusion. Verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See, we have to understand that. that though God is showing us through his word that those who resist will be condemned. See, nothing that God has laid out in his word will fail. It will all come to pass. God is showing us that he is the victor and all threats have been neutralized. The righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be condemned. Now, there is a degree to which this truth should give us great comfort. Great comfort. Not that we find comfort in the destruction of the wicked. That's not it at all. Matter of fact, that should cause us to weep. And it should cause us to tell our friends about who Jesus is now, our friends and family. But the comfort that we find is that God will win. And all that he has shown us will come to pass. Remember, it's not about putting together a calendar. God's using this to build, us, build our character. Now, this passage should give us hope. Because, but it only gives hope to those who have trusted in God's provision for them through Jesus. See, He is the reason we do not need to fear. He is the one who conquered death. Jesus is God's Son, not in the sense of procreation, but in the sense of essence who was sent to save sinners, defeat the powers of darkness, make us clean, remove us from works, remove us from guilt and shame in the sight of God. He is unlike any person in history. You know, some, when I was in India, they said that Jesus was a guru. He was just a guru among many gurus, and he fits within the pantheon of all of the 335 million gods within Hinduism. And one teacher said to me, who was a Christian teacher, he says, remember, a guru was born... He taught, or he lived, he taught, and he died. That's the life of a guru. Jesus, he lived, he taught, he died, and he rose again. That makes him different than every guru. 
that he is the Lord of all. He is unlike any other person in human history. He rose again, and then he appeared to his disciples. He spoke, ate, and walked among his followers for 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven where he awaits the day when he comes again to bring his angels with him to finally defeat the devil completely and set up his kingdom fully with us forevermore. That's our hope. Is it yours? It can be. You know, the Bible is clear, and I'd like to share a couple of verses with you before I close. In John chapter 1, verse 12, the Scripture says that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, this is God, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born again, born from above, born anew, spiritually speaking. That's what God says within his word. And this is, how you are, this is how you receive him. The scripture is very clear that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the coming wrath of God. You won't need to fear the future. You won't need to fear what will come. But without Jesus, I would be very much afraid because there's no defender. For with the heart, one believes the inner person, the depth of our being. It's not just a verbal credence and saying words without meaning them. This is saying the depth of your soul that you believe and that you are saved. For one believes with the heart and is justified, which means declared righteous in the sight of God. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is neither no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what education you have or how much money you make. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. It matters that God loves you and he's offering his son to be your propitiation, to be your savior. That each of us, no matter what our background is, must each receive him as savior and Lord and receive him. And then he, we become God's children. We are forgiven. The shame is removed. We are new creations in the sight of Christ. And that he transform, transforms us. And then we really, truly don't need to be afraid because Jesus has got it taken care of. Jesus has got it taken care of. Isn't that something to praise God for? We should. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your son, our Lord Jesus. Lord, we stand in awe of him. Lord, we do give a hearty amen to all that he has done and all that he is going to do for those who are called by his name. And Lord, to know that we can even be called by your name and knowing that while we were still yet your enemies, yet you died for us. And Lord, today I pray for those who do not yet know you, who have not yet received you as Savior and Lord. They might be reliving by religion, but you're offering a life-giving, transformational relationship. You offer to remove the guilt of our sin and our shame. You offer to truly forgive us of our sins, past, present, and future. Lord, we don't have to to beat ourselves up. We don't have to blow ourselves up. We don't have to go to, to do great works to earn your approval. But Lord, you've given it to us in and through Christ. And Lord, we know that rebellion is, is going to come and is now in many ways already here and it's present in the, the spirit of the age. Lord, help us as Christians to be able to avoid that, to take delight in you, to guard our faith with a great tenacity, not so much concerned about a calendar and when the dates are going to happen and when it, the coming might happen. 
but to be faithful unto you, asking you to mold and shape our character. Lord, for those who have not yet received you, I pray you place such an impression upon them. Show them the depth of your love and help them to see what it is that you have done for them on the cross and how your resurrection has enabled them to have new life in and through you, completely forgiven of each and every sin. So Lord, glorify your name in our midst. Draw us unto yourself and help us truly to take this truth that we have received to be better husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, children, employees. May we truly live out our faith in the hope that in which you have called us. Bless us and use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.